Welcome to this week's edition of The Vasey View. This is my regular podcast where I explore the links between tech and public policy. And I sometimes go on tour. I go on virtual tours. I've been to France. I've been to Estonia. I've been to Holland. I've been to Israel, looking at how these countries put together their tech policies. And sometimes I take a deep dive into a sector like agritech or cybersecurity. And sometimes I talk to big picture policy thinkers like Benedict Evans or Tony Blair or Malcolm Turnbull. I'm delighted this week to welcome Damien Bradfield. Now, Damien is the founding partner and the chief creative officer of a company called We Transfer. Now, We Transfer started in 2009 as a quick and simple file sharing app, as it were, but it's obviously grown into a huge set of tools, paste, collect, paper, and transfer, really to help people in the creative process. It's also become a B corporation, which we're going to talk about as well. Uh, but the reason I wanted to talk to Damien was because he's published a book, published last year or the year before last now, because time flies when you've got a pandemic on, about the big data economy and his views on how to build a better internet. And it's called The Trust Manifesto. And he explores how we can have more responsible technology. He's also annoyingly got his own podcast. So I'm giving him free publicity for his uh, brilliant podcast. And he chooses wonderful guests because he's just had on Narina Hertz, who I also had on to talk about loneliness in an age of technology. But I wanted to start off, obviously, I suspect quite a lot of our listeners know exactly what WeTransfer is. And I wanted to start off by saying, first of all, file sharing company sounds unbelievably boring. And secondly, I have never worked out how to use, because I'm such a ludder, I never work out how to use we transfer or Dropbox and people say, oh, I'm sending you this via this thing. And I think this is a nightmare. I have no idea how to use it. So tell me, tell us, first of all, how you started WeTransfer. What was the need that you were meeting? Why are file share companies interesting? And how on earth do I use them? What an intro. It's the most boring company <laughs> and I don't know how to use it. Well, thanks, Ed, for the pitch. <laughs> so even my mum can use WeTransfer. I'm pretty sure oh, that you can. That is shaming. Yeah, it's very simple. And it started because myself, partners involved in the business back then were, you know, all came from the creative space. So they were in design or media or uh, entertainment. And basically, if you can rewind to 2009, the competition was Rapid Share, Mega Upload, You Send It, which were in a very different market space. So their space was really about piracy. Uh, the guy who ran it was this guy called Kim.com. Oh, yes, I've heard of him. Of course, he's you know he's in, in exile in New Zealand, and he was basically promoting pirated films. The alternative to those sort of public services were FTP sites, um, which were pretty awful and not very functional at all. You would have never been able to use those. And there wasn't much around, so WeTransfer was really um, created to serve our own selfish needs. And the reason that we tried to make it as simple and beautiful as we possibly could was because if it was built for ourselves, why would you make it ugly or you know awkward or anything else? The premise came from we needed to get files from A to B. You know, still an awful lot of stuff was being sent around the world via DVD and CD and stuff on couriers. It was a very different time to now. Barack Obama was only just you know beginning to become part of our lives. We're going back quite a long time, uh, a decade in internet history, and we were really lucky that so many of the factors that affect business today um, and make it very difficult to grow didn't apply. 
So we could grow very organically just through somebody uploading a file, you know, a JPEG of a piece of work they created and send it to five or six people. And two or three of them would automatically become users because they would download the file, experience a beautiful service that had beautiful advertising, not the awful banner advertising you see nearly everywhere else. And they would automatically become users. Facebook, you could grow a community on Facebook without having to spend a single dollar. Um, the same on Twitter. So the, the time for you know, growing a business really was back then. It felt like it was the wild west of the internet and all you really needed to do was be on the right high street at the right time and everyone, everything else would be built up around you. People ask me today, what would you start today if you're going to start a business? And I honestly wouldn't know because I think one of the fundamentals that's, that makes it so complex today online is, is the money you need to be able to scale a business almost implies that you have to go out and raise venture capital. And that wasn't the case. We bootstrapped the business. We didn't raise any money for years. Um, we managed to, you know, do side projects and consulting to to pay the bills, um, whilst the business was, you know, growing very healthily on its own. So we were really, really lucky. I guess the point I'm missing uh, when I was so rude to begin with is that I'm not a person working in the creative industries as well. So it wasn't my. I didn't have a job where I had to move, say, you know, the opening scene of a James Bond movie from where it was filmed to the post-production house in Soho. I mean, companies like Soho Net, for example, had an entire business based on the fact that they had fat pipes running from Los Angeles to Soho. So WeTransfer was a kind of global Soho Net for any creatives that wanted to move big files. Yeah, certainly initially. And that's where we've we've always seen the growth in every new market was very much through those producers, filmmakers, musicians. And then gradually it you know, broadened out to, to eventually appeal to Ed Vasey. <laughs> How did you kind of move into different products? Because you've got these products, which are effectively sort of design tools, aren't they? So paste, collect, paper and transfer. So presumably feedback from your community who on one hand was saying, okay, it's great that we can move a scene from this movie from one location to another. But they started presumably asking you for other tools that they could start to use. Yeah, in part. I mean, to again, maybe arrogantly, we didn't listen to an awful lot of user feedback in the beginning. We built a lot of stuff that we thought and was interesting ourselves, and then many, many of it failed. So if you, you know, go back in time, you know, we were building tools for social, sort of social functioning um, or organizing events. Um, we built a television uh, product that we thought that we had these beautiful ads in the back of WeTransfer that rotated every 40 seconds, and they were full screen. And what I didn't say is we give away 30% of that, that media to support artists and musicians and stuff. So we always have beautiful stories happening on the platform. Um, so we thought we could build a TV app and people would just love you know, the product. And again, we were way too early. No one was interested. Some of the things that we did build, though, like Collect, were really because the, we saw an opportunity for, again, tooling that we thought would be relevant and the need for people to be able to not just pull together files and put them in one place, but, you know, rich media. How can you put together a mood board that would have music, film, references to Spotify, YouTube links, and a whole load of images and JPEGs and stuff, and be able to easily package that up um, when they're not necessarily individual packets of data and send them around? The two other products you referenced, paper and paste, we actually purchased, so we didn't build them. Um, only in 2018, we purchased a company called 53, that was very successful New York-based design sort of setup that um, invented one of the first like pencils for, for drawing on a tablet. Oh, yeah. And then they went on to build Paper, which was a drawing application, which was the number one sketching drawing app on the App Store. And then later Paste, which we fell in love with, which, was, which is a presentation tool that um, you know, is a real equivalent to 
keynote and PowerPoint, but much simpler, much more intuitive. You would love it. Um, you would easily get your head around paste. Uh, <laughs> and then lastly, we have We Present, which is a, a long read creative platform, journalistic platform for, for talking about a lot of the stories that we were featuring in the olden days, just on WeTransfer that we built out to really go deeper into the creative community and hopefully give inspiration to people. So We Present is a, a platform that's now read by up to 4 million people every month. And we've done fantastic partnerships. We're doing one right now with Marina Abramovich. The artist Marina Abramovich for, for the uncivilized people listening to this podcast. The uh, performance artist, exactly, yeah. And, you know, but many, many other, many other big, big names in, in music and fashion and film. So we have a few strings to our bow today. The wrapper, as you say, around everything really is tools for the, for the creative community from inspiration right the way through to creation. Good. Well, I want to talk about the creative community in digital art in a minute, but I just want to pause and talk briefly about you being a B Corps, because I think it's very important to you. And obviously, I'm not entirely sure how well-known B Corps are in the US. We have a lot of listeners in the US. It's a European thing. And from what I can recall, it's basically saying that shareholder value isn't everything. You effectively write into the Articles of Association that you are entitled to take into account uh, in terms of how you run the company, not just returning shareholder value, but you know, environmental sustainability, social impact, and, and other issues. So talk to me about the, why it's important to be a B Corps, the journey you've made to it, and how, how it kind of affects how you run the business. So you're very right. Um, B Corp is not particularly well known, to be frank, not in, not in Europe either. So it's, um, it's a label that um, people are just getting their head around. You know, it, if it was on a packaging um, in a supermarket, it would be the organic label, I guess, that everyone is very familiar with today. So, you know, it's important to us because I think it should be important to everybody. Um, you don't necessarily need to go out and do it. I mean, I think there are a lot of companies that are already acting and behaving like B Corporations. And by doing good and thinking about being good for the planet and their employees and stuff without having the label, we just, you know, wanted to cement some of these things and the B Corp certification, much like the organic certification um, for a growing community is shorthand for good business. And as I said, way back in the beginning, we gave away 30% of our media to support artists causes in America. When we moved out and opened up offices in Los Angeles, we spend an awful lot of media um, and time on issues like gun reform and homelessness but we didn't have anything in stone around how we would carry this you know forwards so we decided to become a b corporation and it really is just to try to make sure that um, not only are we you know to the public demonstrating that we, we believe we are a good business that we believe we're very conscious of the decisions that we make and the impact that we have on society and on the environment. But the, I think the most important thing that many people don't understand about B corporations is the assessment process that you have to go through to be accepted, which is pretty difficult. It certainly for older institutions, it's perhaps nearly entirely prohibitive to become one because you have to change and you have to think about your supply chain. You have to make sure that you're working with suppliers that, um, you know, commit to certain levels of sustainable development and business themselves to a certain recycling policy. You know, there are some big companies out there that have become B corporations, Danone um, being one of them. Um, and I, I think for Danone, it's quite phenomenal that they could achieve it. Ben & Jerry's is another fantastic example, which has really forced Unilever to reconsider the way that it operates. And I, I can remember when Ben & Jerry's was acquired by, um, by Unilever, a lot of the policy that Ben and Jerry's have put into place that we all love, you know, we like the fact that it's sort of an activist brand and that it has 
an opinion, and it, I mean, very recently it decided that it's going to stop selling ice cream in uh, in Palestine. Yeah, I saw that. Funny enough, it was in the papers on the day we're recording. Yeah, it's a big, you know, it's a big statement, and people like that about the about the company. And Ben and Jerry's, you know, has really pushed Unilever to reconsider the way that it works and and what what works. And I think for you know for my kids, I have teenage kids, eleven and, and fifteen, coming on sixteen and twenty five. You know, these things are much more important to them, as in, sorry, the B Corporation sort of standards and ethics and values are much more important to them than um, the ability to be able to collect air miles or, you know, as you say, shareholder value, I think, or the amount of revenue a company is generating. So kind of bring it alive, is there, is there one big change, as it were, that kind of sticks in your mind as you became a B Corp, a practice that you were doing that you changed because of this kind of audit process and journey that you had to go on? We were already great, Ed, you know. Exactly. No, no, I kind of assumed you were. But, but I thought there might be one thing that you sort of uncovered in particular that said, go well, on. I mean, something that's a challenge, we've been sort of aided by COVID, is um, travel. We have offices in New York and LA and London and, um, and, and Amsterdam. So we had a lot of people bouncing all over the globe, you know, several times a year. And we were offsetting, but people were not driven to consciously think about how they were traveling. COVID obviously put a halt to all of that travel. And now you know, we've come back, we've, we're asking employees to really question whether they need to. And for example, the policy is trains over planes. You know, short haul flights between London and Amsterdam, for example, are really the worst of all flights. So please don't take a plane, take a train. And it is an inconvenience for a huge amount of people, right? It seems to add time, it, you don't collect air miles. But I'd like to think that our company understands that there is a climate crisis you know, recent floods that are happening in this country and in Germany um, seem to be another sign that you know, there is something at, at large. And whatever policy the company has in place, we as individuals have to do something. The travel one is, is, is a challenge that we're dealing with right now. The biggest challenge, I mean, really the elephant in the room for a, for a tech company that, you know, is sending billions of files literally every month all over the world is, is servers. You know, the energy consumption of, of, of servers and computers. And I think this is it's understood, but I don't think it's really well understood by you know, the general public again at the moment. When I talk to people about energy consumption through viewing Netflix in high definition versus standard definition, everyone says, right, does it make a difference? Yeah, it's literally half the energy consumption. Oh, that's interesting. And it's a very simple switch that you probably wouldn't even notice had occurred had you, if you just changed the settings on your television. But you've probably got a 4K television, so you, you, know, you didn't want to. I have a very, very old television, you'll be pleased to know. <laughs> Although I, I, I'm keen to buy a new one, but it's ancient. So in that sense, I'm doing doing my bit for the planet. There we go. But yeah, so our, our biggest challenge going forward is going to be um, service and, and working with AWS, who is our biggest provider of cloud computing, to make sure that we're only using green energy. We're, we're carbon neutral as it is right now. So we, mm. we've got to a place where we're, we're carbon neutral, but through offsetting. But we have made a pledge to be to reduce our carbon emissions by 30% by 2025. And realistically, the only way to do that is through working with AWS um, and ensuring that they're playing their part too. You know, we've bitten off quite a big chunk. <laughs> so turning to your sort of creatives uh, and the creative community you work with, you're the sort of Soho house of file sharing. So you've got all these uh, fantastic artists and designers as your clients. What fascinates me, I'm particularly sort of obsessed is the wrong word because I do very little about it, but the interface between tech and culture, which is slightly off the main topic of, of what I normally podcast on. But I recently had a, 
discussion with the new head of the Natural History Museum, it's a guy called Doug Gurr, who did indeed work for Amazon UK, about how museums can become more digital. And this constant sort of refrain debate, if you like, about museums are effectively an analog space that has gone online, taking the analog experience. And how do you change that to effectively reimagining the museum digital first, if you like? Now, you not only, I know, support lots of artistic institutions. I was talking to somebody from the Royal Academy the other day who mentioned that you had supported them and they were incredibly, that loved the partnership, but you promote digital art as it were and so on. So if you could, I'd just love Damien's views, if you like, on kind of where art is going digital age. We can go in sort of NFTs, which have almost overnight become a sort of cliche, but just what you think about the kind of creative experience online, because you are sort of at the heart of it. It's very nice that you'd say that, Ed, because we'd like to say that ourselves, but we're always a bit too bashful. I mean, we've been really behind trying to help artists online build up a community and build up awareness for a long, long time. I mean, when we first started, when we gave away ad space to creatives, our real goal was to crash their website with traffic. And, you know, we had a 5% click-through rate and we have millions of users, so we really were able to do that. And what amazed us was how poor a lot of artists' digital presence really was. Um, a lot of them didn't have portfolios. A lot of them didn't have the time to, or interest, to be honest, in building a, you know, a digital presence. And to be frank, that hasn't really changed too much today. An awful lot of people that were in fine art you know, sort of resent the internet um, and find it a real distraction. They don't think that it necessarily adds value to, to their lives. And to be honest, I would have agreed to that. I would agree with that statement from my point of view, if you ask me. Or a lot of artists, I think the web can be a terrible distraction. Um, and it's built that way, right? I mean, it's, it is the distraction tool. So, But again, COVID changed so much of it. You, I mean, you raised NFT, so I, I think it's a fascinating topic because um, I don't know that it would have been a topic had we not had a pandemic. I think you know people were really forced to re have to reconsider how they were going to sell work and how they're going to generate money when there are no museums, no exhibitions, no gallery openings happening. How are you going to, how are you going to earn some money? And I have some fascinating conversations with artists at the moment where I was trying to push them to get into NFT development and to, to think about it. And they were rightly asking, okay, but you know, what's the curation? What am I, what's my work going to sit alongside? Where is this platform and, and who's going to make sure that I'm being seen alongside like-minded people? And that doesn't exist yet. Then there's, of course, the, the ecological aspect or the environmental aspect. You know, mining, it does consume a considerable amount of energy, so it is not particularly environmentally friendly. You know, that, that raises questions around how environmentally friendly the existing museum roadshow is and shipping work all over the world in containers and storage and all the rest of it. We don't really have any data on it. So can we judge fairly? I'm not too sure. But it is a really interesting space. That The thing that really excites me is actually the opportunity to turn it from nerd language to human speak. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, a non-fungible token, I mean, who on earth came up with that? It means nothing to anybody, really. And it certainly isn't language that my mum would understand or, or, or think, oh, yeah, I'd be interested in that. It's just work. And the most exciting thing about NFTs is the ability to be able to have a ledger that shows transaction history and to offer artists something that never, ever, ever existed really before. And that's the ability to earn revenue, recurring revenue on future sales. Yes. That is the future of digital art. I don't really know that it's going to be in, well, I hope, let's say, it won't be in NFTs. I hope that we can find new language as we did with the web and we move away from talking about HTML and we just talk about, you know, web pages and we talk about sites and then we, you know, we talk about 
companies now online because they, they're no longer, a, there's no real differentiation, right, between bricks and mortar and digital. But I'm, I'm really excited about that ledger and how somebody who may be insignificant today in the art world um, might sell a piece of work that in the future is sold on Christie's for 30 million and they still earn uh, a, you know, a percentage of that work as Spotify has, has done. They, we just haven't done it for the art world. So I think that is really, really interesting. I really hope that there is not you know, a massive shift to pure digital art because I love going to a museum. I like seeing the work. I think it's really important that you can interact and touch and experience and, and have time with work. Be that a digital piece of work in a physical space, I still think it's far more enjoyable to be immersed in that experience and to, uh, to experience the art in that context and setting. I mean, I, I don't want to go off on too many kind of different rabbit holes. I mean, I, I obviously, I, I'm excited by NFTs as well, only in the sense that it's a kind of, it's a digital authentication of an experience. And funnily enough, I think as interesting as art is going to be things like kind of sports memorabilia and things like this that are uh, clips and so on that, that people, uh, and it is a, it's a kind of straightforward value proposition. If, if you believe owning the NFT of, for the sake of argument, because I'm a certain age, Bjorn Borg winning a Wimbledon semi-final, Wimbledon final is worth owning. You'll pay for it, and you can say I own the authentic version of this. There, it may be reproducible in billions of ways every day, but you own the authentic. Uh, but what do you think of? You know, I was interested in what you're saying about you know, like you. Obviously, I want to go in a museum and experience the art. Uh, it's quite a sort of odd question, this, because it doesn't necessarily go to your what, what you do as a company. But you know, are museums using digital to reimagine the experience of engaging with art? I'm thinking weirdly about something like Van Gogh Live. Is that a wonderful way of making Van Gogh accessible, or is it tacky and slightly? No, I think I think it, you know. So often we get distracted by, you know, talking about our friends and peers and uh, not thinking about the other, however many billion people are on the planet. And the internet gives us the ability to, you know, bring those experiences to so many other billions that would never have that opportunity to ever see it in, in real life. So I, I think it's amazing. You know, that, and that, that we've seen, I, I keep references COVID. I, I've got this hang up clearly today on COVID, but <laughs> how many hookups and meetups and drinks events and stuff did you have to go through in the first months of, of, of the COVID pandemic before people realized that it just did not work? You know, you couldn't replicate. Yeah. Um, and we, we've, we're seeing that. We've seen that for a long time with the, with the museum world and the art world, where they try to duplicate the art world, the museum experience online. And I, I think that's wrong. Yeah, so do I. However... You know, when the Tate Modern did Night at the Museum and you were able to experience the Tate through robots that went through the museum at, at, at nighttime and, and gave you this you know, view of a museum uh, when it's normally closed and no one could have access to it online, I think that sort of thing is fantastic. That's, that's what it's for. It's to give you experiences that you could not otherwise experience in, in real life and to give you a different perspective and a different opportunity. I would love it if you know museums and galleries were focused on not trying to replicate what already exists online for those people that can't be there, but to offer another window, another dimension to that world that couldn't possibly be done in real life. I want to talk about the Trust Manifesto, which is obviously your book that you published in 2019. And it's sort of focused on obviously the kind of surveillance age that we now live in as consumers and yeah. all those adages about if it's free or the product. And I'm interested, first of all, 
how you come to. So let me be sort of devil's advocate or provocative. You come from a background in advertising. That's where you started. So advertising is all about the data, even though there's and the famous phrase about you know, 50% of the money is effective, but we just don't know which 50%. And funny enough, when I was speaking to Doug Gurr, the head of the Natural History Museum, you know, he thinks one of the great benefits of the pandemic, as it were, inverted commas, was that everyone has to register to visit his museum. And he's now getting great data sets of who visits the Natural History Museum. He wants to use that to build a kind of bespoke relationship. You know, if you like dinosaurs, you get one email. If you like meteors, you get another. So it's always been about the data. So why do you think, what has changed? Why do you think there's a kind of step change in terms of why we should be concerned? So I have no issue with data at all. I think data is really important. And, um, you know, in the, in the same way that you might process data um, naturally through your gut without you know, without necessarily realizing it, we're always analyzing and processing data based on our experiences. I mean, the main point of my book is is about trust. And what I think, certainly through many of the last 15 years, you know, some very, very big corporations have gained enormous momentum and clout. And it has been at the cost of um, the, the user. I mean, even the language that we use, you know, is sort of toxic that we discuss customers as being users. But um, so much of it was done without any uh, offline value being considered whatsoever. And maybe my world is a very idealistic view of how life should be and how business should be. But in my view of the world, whether you're online or offline, I would like to think that a company is considering me as a customer and is, is trying to offer me an, ex an experience in the way that I would like to appreciate it, which is on the high street, the door is open. I can walk in, I can browse this door, I can have a look around, I could ask somebody a question and I can leave without having to leave any data or trace whatsoever. The company, the retailer or the brand has the confidence, which is often lacking, to think that they offer me such an experience and they are so confident that um, their experience is good that I would just purely return one day. And they'll use messaging and media to you know, try to stimulate me to, to, to come back as we've, as we've done in the olden days of advertising. Um, but it is that confidence that I think is lacking so much on, on the web that forces a lot of companies to have to go to depths that are way beyond what you would ever do in the real world to you know, get you back in. I mean, so the opening chapter of my book is uh, a sequence that, um, to be frank, was borrowed very recently by Apple in a, in a very well-produced spot that shows somebody you know, walking down the high street and, and they put a pair of sneakers, they pick up a pair of sneakers in the store, they put them back. And as they walk out of that store down the high street, the shop assistant follows them with the same pair of sneakers, basically trying to resell those sneakers all the way until he gets home. Yeah, That's the life that we have accepted and we think that it's totally normal online, but we would never ever accept offline. Mm -hmm. And what I would like to try to promote, be that through doing it ourselves as a, shop, as a company or uh, in, in lobbying and talking to regulators, is to try to make sure that we're thinking like an offline business, even when we're, when, when we're operating online and thinking about what is best and what is decent behavior in business, as opposed to what we can get away with. And I think, um, you know, because of a lack of regulation, because of the speed with which the tech industry grew and the, 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 the lack of speed with it, which regulation grew, it got to a place, you know, up until quite recently, and there is a lot of change happening recently, but up until the point that I, I wrote my book, it was pretty depressing, I think, um, how you know a lot of companies were operating and what they were getting away with. And it's interesting, you know, your reference to companies, I presume, is, is to the platforms like 
Facebook and Google. But but in a sense, it's also it's the companies that advertise. And when I made that remark about you know the famous quote about advertising that you know half of the money is effective, but you don't know which half. In a way, you know, Facebook collects all this data, not because they are sort of an intrinsically evil company, but because they know that that's the company's advertising want. I mean, do they ever audit? They, the companies, or you know, your sneaker company, does it audit and say, if I actually stop doing this or reduce this activity by fifty percent, I would still get the same result? No, because I think, I mean, some companies are. I mean, I, I know that a company like Adidas, for example, just on the sneaker story, has actually done a ton of work in this and pretty much got to the conclusion that last click attribution, which you know was the the conversation everyone was having for years and trying to define, you know, where that user last last saw an ad. Um, it's nearly impossible to do. So they got to a point where actually they've spotted, flipped it on its head and have said, you know, we're going to go back to the days where we're putting 60 to 70% of our money against brand advertising and only 30 to 40% against performance because it's nearly impossible for people to be able to, for us to accurately determine where a customer has last seen an ad, a banner ad, or, um, you know, something else around the internet. What we as a company need to focus on is just making sure that People know who Adidas are and that we do it in a way that actually resonates with our user base. Um, and most of the time, that's through making it attractive, making it desirable, you know, making it a, a purchase or a brand that people uh, aspire to, to own. I think, unfortunately, very much like you know, the gold rush or, or the, the silver rush or whichever rush you want to look at, prospectors tend to mine until it runs out. Yeah, I think I think it's a good analogy, and that's what we've been doing online. You know, if if there is more data, if it's possible for us to determine, you know, whilst you're online, could we also determine how much you're actually perspiring and how much you know perspiration is coming from under your underpits, uh, your armpits? We would probably take it. Well, I, I can exclusively realize it's, it's 29 degrees. I'm thinking this podcast. Yeah, but I want to know exactly how many how many grams <laughs> or milliliters of sweat you're perspiring right now, Ed. I can't believe you are, you are looking at my sweaty face. This is how the analogy came out. It's so embarrassing. I, I, weirdly, because when you were saying about when the gold runs out, I was having a sort of parallel thought, which is, you know, the, the 18th century newspaper was covered in little box adverts. You know, it's actually a, a relatively recent phenomenon. I'm showing my age by still referring to newspapers. And it did occur to me, you know, if I go on a website of a news, news site, for example, it's a terrible, really horrific experience because I'm a quarter of the way down the article and then this advert pops up in my face and it sort of follows me around and I inadvertently click on it and suddenly I'm looking at a new Citroen or something. Presumably there will come a point, and again, I'm sort of going back to advertising background, where the, the sites, particularly kind of a news site, which relies on the consumer having a great experience, will say, come on, we've got to actually curate the interface and not just sign up with a ad media company that's going to just cover our site with ads. I mean, so it will get more sophisticated and perhaps the user experience will, will improve. I mean, you say that, but with the internet's 25 years old and we're still, we're still using the same formats, you know, the same banner ads and everything else that we rebel against by only having one ad on our platform. But I think we're one of the few platforms in the world where there's only one thing happening at any one time. And the reason that you know, we have some phenomenal brands advertising with us, pretty much nearly all the luxury goods of the world, because they're looking for brand safety. You know, we have one ad on the screen at any one time and it rotates every 40 seconds. So you don't sit alongside, you know, a penis enlargement advertisement or, um, you know, an ad for a competitor. It's only ever. David, I, I never see those kind of adverts. I don't know what your websites you're visiting, but I never see, I only see them for cars. They're not on car sites. <laughs> Did you collect any data on 
on the, the, the people who see the ads on your site then? Do, do your advertisers collect any data? Yeah, so I mean, we, we collect data, you know, we understand who our target audience is. Up until very recently, we really only had a limited amount of data based around their IP address. But the really interesting thing about WeTransfer, I think, is that I, I'm going to make a sweeping statement. I'll probably get hit but for saying uh, by the team, but people don't really care too much about the data. You know, if, if your product is, is interesting enough and you're offering something unique, and we are hands down the only website in the world where there's 98% of the screen dedicated to a brand, mm. like you said, the New York Times doesn't even offer that. Mm then we're in a very luxurious position where the data almost isn't relevant. There's enough traffic coming to the site and obviously enough clicks that people are happy with it, um, that we're seen as a billboard. And you know, billboard advertising for decades has had no data at all. We came up with these statistics on footfall that we'd say, you know, 72,000 people walk past this Times Square ad at 143. It's like, really? You measured that? That's crap. It's impossible for you to know that. And how do you know where they were looking? You know, all this sort of stuff. So it doesn't, I don't think it really matters that much, but you make a really valid point. I wish that we would get to a point where people say, you know, experience is so important that we're going we're gonna to clean up these websites. Again, I always try to refer to the real world because um, I think we get, we get lost when it's only about the internet. At the moment, the game that we play when it comes to advertising is really that the, the internet is only interested in classified ads using your... 18th century uh, reference. And um, for some reason, we think that the, the internet world, the user, um, isn't sophisticated and would never be interested in walking down Bond Street, um, you know, Fifth Avenue and seeing some beautiful custom billboards or a fantastically well-positioned, um, you know, shop display. We, for some reason, don't think that they want that, but I think they desperately do. Yet so few sites create it. It's unbelievable. I want to sort of ask your views on competition because I think one of the interesting points you make is you, you refer to you as your website as being kind of kind of unique in terms of the, the user experience and, and the, the advertising. In terms of kind of data and protecting your data, a website a search engine like DuckDuckGo, you know, is the go-to site of choice if you don't want the sites that you visit to track you back, as it were. Do you think that one of the answers to this kind of conundrum, assuming that people fall on your side of the argument, as it were, is actually competition rather than regulation in terms of trying to not, not necessarily break up Facebook, but to make it easier for new. I mean, why haven't you, for example, been steamrolled for the sake of argument by the Googles or the Amazons of this world? Uh, because they're not as good as us. They don't <laughs> offer the same as us. We're in a sector and our audience is something that they're not really that bothered with, I think. Um, if I pick on Amazon for a second, you know, Amazon is now spending really heavily on brand. Um, because I think they've recognized, um, this is pure speculation, so I um, feel free for anyone listening to comment and blow me up on this, but I think it's because they've failed to attract the luxury goods of the world to Amazon. Over years, they've tried desperately, and I believe the only luxury good brand they have on Amazon is Burberry. And I think they're now recognizing that they can't do the sort of ads that you were talking about and behave in the way that you were without being a little bit more like Amazon Prime and investing in quality and content that um, you know, the luxury goods of the world uh, aspire to sit alongside. So I, I, th I think they ignored our audience, which is the creative audience, artists, the, the, the curators, creators of the world, um, and therefore didn't, didn't really see us coming. So your earlier point was about competition. I think the internet really 
just as we said earlier on, you know, took off so quickly that regulation couldn't keep up. Mm. Um, and what we're seeing now, I mean, as, as we speak, whatever day this is today, um, you know, Joe Biden is, I think, putting in place some really interesting policy and doing it in a very intelligent manner by not just focusing on the tech industry, but by looking at competition through industry as a whole and asking people like Tim Wu to come in and, and advise on how to not necessarily break it up, but, but change it for the better. Because if you, if you consider Google's uh, situation in the ad market, they are a complete monopoly. I mean, there is barely anybody that can touch them in terms of you know, the revenue that they're generating from, I'm sorry, I'm just talking about search, but the revenue they generate from search is, is phenomenal. And there's, there's nothing really being done to create or allow for any fair, fair competition there. And that has to change. And what other recommendations would you have for kind of policymakers? So I, I agree with you, Ray Biden, and um, competition. I think he's making some some very smart moves. And I know a few of the people who uh, are kind of advising him on that. One of the other things, funnily enough, that the people in the Biden administration are fans of is actually something that most of, I suspect, our listeners would hate is the data protection regulations in Europe. And in fact, the Californian privacy law was inspired by that. I mean, are there other things that policymakers you think should do? And to a certain extent, we're talking about the US, but also, you know, Europe is obviously pioneering in the sense of at least having a go at um, taking on big tech and putting in place privacy regulations. But what are the things that you, sitting running a tech business you know, at the coalface and being able to look under the bonnet, think policymakers should kind of understand and think about and act on? So I do agree with you. I think that the that Europe, it's, we were we were living in the U.S. up until two years ago. We came back to the to to the, to Europe, and in part because I do think that Europe is really far more progressive when it comes to regulation and actually understanding and implementing change with regards to the internet. However, it will I think it will always be too little, too late, and I I fully suspect that in the next five years we're going to see a huge shift towards crypto, Bitcoin, NFT, another internet that that will exist. Um, that I think the tech sector will fail to um, be on top of and to, to to be regulating and keeping up with. That's a great that is a great point, by the way. The whole kind of I mean, because uh, you know the, the tone of my kind of questions earlier is you know crypto is quite interesting and fascinating. But you're you're right. I mean, we talk about digital currencies, but there is a, in effect an entirely new internet economy being built. Totally. And if again, if somebody asked me, what would you do? You know. On, in the internet going forwards, and I, I was pitched something yesterday, and I was looking at it thinking, "Oh, it's so boring." You know, I've seen, <laughs> I've seen this. I've seen this so many times before. I mean, you're basically just trying to, you know, I don't know, almost scrape off an extra ten cents of something that's already been created by just doing it a bit faster or cheaper. It's just really not that interesting. Whereas, if I think about that, what we were talking about with NFTs and the concept of the ledger, I think, wow, the opportunity in that space, the opportunity with Bitcoin with NFTs, I think is so much more interesting. And I can't see any alternative, to be frank, uh, than uh, a move in that direction. Because if I take the real world analogy again, and, and think a bit of re retail space and high street space or physical space, all the domain names in the real in the you know, web 2.0 world have been taken. Mm. Literally, and so all the shop fronts are full, right? I mean, the Bond streets, uh, all the rest of the streets of the world are, are full. So there's literally no domains to, to, to purchase anymore. The infrastructure and stuff, we, pretty, we seem to have hit a sort of ceiling in terms of what we can build and how we can differentiate um, through technology on the existing infrastructure. So I think we are going to have to go to a new place. In the world, again, we're looking at Mars, 
Uh, we're looking at going to space. I think in the in the digital world, it will be another internet that it hasn't got the restrictions that we're currently dealing with. And it sort of means, I mean, this is going to sound absurd. This will sound exactly what it is, which is a middle-aged man trying to sound hip. But this is sort of the metaverse that we're talking about. Yeah. A good view. <laughs> <laughs> This is when I remember, I remember going to some mad bearded Icelandic guy when I went to talk about creative industries in Iceland about five years ago, talking about the metaverse. We're going to live in this metaverse. And, and to a certain extent, they're probably right, actually. There are so many different um, platforms that are existing right now that you, know, you can buy digital real estate. You know, on that digital real estate, you can build uh, a, a digital museum. And in that digital museum, you can place digital art. And I was talking about it with my dad. And he was saying, well, that's absolutely nuts, isn't it? Who's going to do that? It's already been done. I mean, 25 years ago, if you'd said, you know, you're going to spend 10 grand on a domain name that's going to be shop.com, you'd have said, that's nuts. How you don't even own it. It's it's completely digital. It has no meaning. But it's no more nuts than my kids who are already spending a fortune or used to on Fortnite buying skins and, and building stuff that had no that wasn't had no physicality to it. It's very real, it's very now. And I think it's um it's very necessary to to go back to your point about competition. I don't think we'll be able to break up the competition. I hope actually it will be us deviating from the current path and creating a new path and almost prospecting, pioneering new ground for us to be able to create something new. Brilliant. Well, I compared you earlier to Soho House. Now I suppose I've got to compare to Elon Musk. It's probably not. Oh, helpful. no, don't do that. <laughs> I'll take Nick Jones and Elon Musk. What is going to be your next? You, you mentioned Marina Abramovich. What's going to be your next kind of art institution collaboration, do you think? We've supported lots of institutions in the past. You know, it's a lot with the Hammer Museum, with Tate, with uh, Royal Academy, with lots of different galleries. I mean, we're doing a lot of music. So we're currently doing a big uh, collaboration with Nigel Godrich from Radiohead called From the Basement. And we have a very exciting uh, project coming out with a young artist called Moses Sumney um, that I think is going to be one of the biggest things that we'll do later on this year. Plus, we're completely rebuilding. We present the platform which everything lives on. So there will be a completely new uh, interactive experience for people to digest and consume some of this artwork and, um, and music and stuff. So there is actually tons of stuff. I'm probably missing all the really juicy stuff. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Damien. That was a fascinating discussion. And um, I'm fascinated by all the stuff about crypto. I think that's going to be, not that I obviously understand a word of it, as somebody who can't even use a car sharing site. But that is um, absolutely brilliant. And thank you very much for spending time with me. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.